Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Glenn Stahlsmith. Glenn is a pastor who serves two United Methodist churches in rural North Carolina. He's also a Ph.D. student at Duke Divinity School. For 12 years, he lived in the Philippines, working as an ethnomusicologist with Wycliffe Bible Translators. He's also the reviews editor of Global Forum on Arts and Christian Faith. I give you Glenn Stalsman. Glenn, welcome back to the podcast and Merry Christmas season. We're still in Christmas season, the first Sunday after Christmas. So Merry Christmas to you. Thanks, Scott. Merry Christmas. Yeah. So this is it's very interesting because uh, the I think like I wish we had a richer sort of tradition of the 12 days of Christmas in the church. It's sort of like we need to bring it, it back. Yeah. Where you had this sort of like kind of almost a Hanukkah like, you know, extension of the holiday or so, so so it's not as anticlimactic when it's you know the first it's still christmas and yet it feels like sort of ah it's over you know we're looking right. at new years yeah this is the fifth day of christmas only exactly on the fifth day of christmas what's on the fifth day the five golden rings five golden rings so here we here we have isaiah 63 verses seven through nine where we're told that the the gracious deeds of the lord will be recounted because all the Lord has done for us. Um, and he said, surely these are my people, children who will not deal falsely. Uh, so this is a real uh, celebration of what God has done for them, uh, sort of in in the history of redemption. And it's kind of a fitting Christmas text, because if the Christ event is the sort of ultimate, as Paul says, the yes to all God's promises, then it's, it's a very uh, it's sort of celebration of all the, deliverance that God's done in Israel's life, even exilic Israel. And, you know, as Christians, we look at this as sort of, you know, Christmas is a continuation of that story. Yeah. And if you're going to be using this Isaiah text uh, in your in your liturgy and in your preaching uh, this Sunday, um, I imagine you're going to be doing it through Matthew 2, I would assume. And I, I think that's why this uh, text was picked to, to to rhyme with with that gospel passage because you have resonances on several levels um, with with what we're going to talk about in a few minutes in Matthew, in Matthew two. Um, you've got a parenthood theme, which of course is strong with Mary and Joseph, yeah, maybe Jesus. Um, you've got slavery and suffering, um, which is which is really strong here in Isaiah. Um, your congregation may not be too concerned about Deutero and Third Isaiah's, um, but but if you if you are, this is Third Isaiah. This is the people back from exile, and may have some interesting ties to the Sunday after Christmas. You know, we've gotten back to the land, and we've made it through Christmas. But maybe uh, these days after Christmas aren't ex- aren't as exciting as we had planned for them to be. Maybe there's a little bit of letdown. Um, just like getting back to getting back to Jerusalem and realizing that things uh, aren't that great. Um, nonetheless, God is with us. Um, and God has, what I find really interesting in this passage is verse nine, um, saying that it wasn't a messenger, not an angel, uh, that would 
would deliver the people, but God's own presence. And uh, it's an interesting distinction um, that I don't think is made in a lot of other places in scripture. Um, what exactly angels do, which in itself is another theme that runs through uh, all the texts uh, given for this Sunday is, is a little bit of angelology. Yeah, it's interesting too, because in instances when angels appear, people are usually startled. And there are times, there are instances like Joshua, when the angel, you know, the commander of the Lord, Lord's hosts appears and, you know, Joshua's inclination is to worship him. He says, what are you doing? I'm just a creature like you. So, you know, I, I might be seemingly a very glorious creature, but I'm just a creature like you in the sense that the angels, so this contrast, I mean, deliverance from God's angel is no, through God's angel is no small thing, right? I mean, that's a sure. supernatural and amazing thing. So it's like, but by contrast, God's own presence, right, is sort of, it, it's not the creaturely deliverance, but the deliverance by the, by the arm, by the hand of the creator. Indeed. And there's a certain vulnerability, too, that God seems to show here. Um, this is just three verses, of course. And so if, if you like to beef up the readings and, and want to add anything, um, I, I would caution you against perhaps maybe adding the six verses in Isaiah 63 that go before this simply because between verses six and seven is a really hard pivot. Um, the first part of Isaiah 63 are the grapes of wrath and God is a, a vengeful God um, coming to um, coming to make things right. Uh, uh, talking about robes that are made red and treading through the wine press. Um, verse seven then changes completely. So um all that to say that if you want to use both of those passages, you have two images of God that you can put together, um, but it might, might be disconcerting if you don't want to deal with that. So um, if you want to read more than three verses, maybe maybe go on into verse 10 and following because verse four be, or sorry, verse seven begins a new section um, uh, where God is a gracious God. God is a, a God who's present and and God in some ways as a parent is is vulnerable towards God's children. Yeah, and God's no is always for his people encompassed in the greater yes, right? Like that God's that God's yes is ultimately louder and encompasses the no. So that that judgment is not in tension with his grace, but it it serves that in in mysterious ways, I think is, you know, significant. That could be a great way to go with that, certainly. If you wanted to add in the persnickety, you know, if you want to bring in the persnickety passages, but if you want to sing the battle yeah. hymn of the Republic on the Sunday after Christmas or first Sunday of Christmas, then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which should be a, you know, which would be an interesting uh, selection. Mm, would be. Mm. On to Hebrews, we have uh, Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 18, where here we have this great passage, it's fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, and bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. And it just it talks about, you know, that the, the Jesus is not being ashamed to call his people brothers and sisters. And, and because of this, because not just that he's redeemed us, but the way he's redeemed us, he's the way he's redeemed the people of God, that it's, that it's, that the salvation is trustworthy. And then again, you're right. There's a contrast with angels. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, that God, I love this in verse 16, it's clear that God did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he became like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Yeah, it's this beautiful sort of explanation of, you know, this is kind of, is it Gregory of Nazianzus, the Cappadocian, that said that the unassumed is the unhealed? Right. And so here you have the author of Hebrews kind of meditating on the assumption of of the affliction of human beings in, 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 light, in a world east of Eden, and that God in Christ takes a share of that, owns that, uh, doesn't re- re- just redeem us from the afflictions, but shares in them. I, I generally don't preach out of Hebrews. I find it very difficult to take a passage like this and, and preach through it to find a, a through line, say. Um, but if you can just find a thread, you can just find a piece and, and use that piece. There's so much here that you can take. And, and like you said, um, what's not assumed is not healed would, would be a wonderful, uh, whether you quote it or not, would be a, a, a wonderful thing to pick up from the incarnation during this Christmas season. And in uh, verse 14 gives us a, an on-ramp to think about Easter. That uh, Yeah, yeah, certainly, yeah. That through death, Christ might destroy death. It, it's one of those wonderful incarnation paradoxes uh, that what Christ takes on, Christ wins. And um, that's worth meditating on for your whole homily or sermon. And could just stay within that one verse of Hebrews if you wanted to and take it out to first Corinthians 15, talk about defeat over sin and death. Um, but that that's what this season is about. And the writer of Hebrews gets it here. Um, and again, and like you said, um, angels come in again, sort of a, again, as second class citizens, uh, Christ didn't come for the angels. He came for us, which is a, a continual theme throughout the whole book here in Hebrews. Um, but a lot to go on. Um, a, a lot to work with. And again, slavery, suffering themes are here too. If you're inclined to try to tie together two or three of the lectionary readings, um, you have it, you have them there. Yeah. It's interesting too. Cause you think like, I mean, the context of this is interesting. We probably have Jewish Christians who thought, even though, even though Christ was a suffering Messiah, that the rest of their countrymen would come along with them and, and come to believe and, and that's not happening. Right. And maybe they're having second mm. thoughts and, you know, you see this often, you see it so th- often in the new Testament, you know, Paul has to do this all the time, defending the fact that he does not look like Joel Osteen, right. He does not look like a super apostle, right. He doesn't, you know, he, it, that, so that the followers of Jesus, the, 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 you know, the apostles are mostly have stories that don't look spectacular. You know, and generally you think about it's it's remarkable that anybody heard and accepted the proclamation of a crucified Messiah, because there were other would be messiahs in the, you know, in the Second Temple Jewish period. And when they died, the movements died. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hey, wow. Usually if you got crucified, that was a surefire sign. You weren't the messiah. Like, check. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But so maybe there's some of that going on here. and, And, you know, there's this temptation to sort of you know, uh, to leave the faith, you know, there, maybe they're, they're getting pressure from friends or family or former teachers who say, look, come on, you're, 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 you know, what's your hang up on this guy that you know, you've abandoned the covenants that, you know, you're a child of Abraham. What, what are you thinking here? And the author confronts this, you know, head on. 
I saw this great meme on social media the last few days. And like anything you see on there, I don't know how much truth there is to it or if it was just something manufactured, but it looked like a screen grab from somebody who tweeted something to the effect of, how could you worship a God who would urinate and defecate on himself? You know, what, what a horrible religion, you know, how, how could you be a follower of this, this kind of quote unquote savior? And, and the person who retweeted it said, yeah, it's, it's really great. Um, you want to join us? And, and I think, you know, that, that brings together this foolishness that the incarnation is, um, that this, that the creator of the universe steps into time, steps into flesh, suffers all things, experiences life like us. Um, not, not, and not just to say, Hey, look, look what I can do, but to save it and to save us all. Um, yeah, it's interesting. William Abraham comments on this passage that philosophical theologian from he's a United Methodist and he, he is he, yeah taught he at SMU at per- for years and years yeah yeah he was at Perkins right yep and he says that the one of the challenges here like the author of Hebrews is to bring this good news to life by persuading people that what God did in Jesus Christ is fitting the standard of intellectual success is soft rather than hard it's a matter of illumination rather than of proof it is God who has come to us in Jesus entering our world and defeating the powers of sin, death, and the demonic. We're not dealing here with an angel, a sage, a charismatic politician, a great philosopher, or the like. We welcome such folk and the treasures they bring. However, if we are to live as God planned and intended, we need to have God come among us and lead us. We need a divine agent, a divine presence, divine touch. Anything less is too weak and inadequate. Equally, we need one who is one of us, as one of our own, one who has lived of the life of flesh and blood that we ourselves live. We need a human agent, a human presence, and a human touch. Anything less is too distant and ethereal. This is precisely what we have in Jesus Christ, fully human, fully divine. His life and work represent a fitting and appropriate divine strategy to put things right for Jew and Gentile. And I like that. He's kind of yeah. contemporary contextualization of this. You know, it's nice. He's, he's riffing off of verse 11 there, where the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. And so in Christ, yeah. we have a sibling and what a privilege that is. Yeah. Yeah. And one who knows, you know, our, our own pain. I mean, this is, you know, the power of like, it, you know, I, I, it's, it, it's oftentimes one of the most insensitive things one can ever say, right? I know how you feel because we don't know mm-hmm. how people feel, uh, but God does. And in Christ, he, he knows and feels how we feel. And, uh, you know, that's what, what is, Bonhoeffer say, only the suffering God can help. Amen. Yeah, and that's what we have a picture of here in Hebrews. On to the gospel reading, we have a reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Here, this is, you know, that we have this picture of Joseph getting warned to flee to Egypt because Herod's going to attempt to destroy this, his child, the Christ child. And when Herod saw that he'd be tricked by the wise men, he's infuriated. And he wants to kill everybody who's under two years old uh, in and around Bethlehem. And yeah, I mean, this is a pretty dark, uh, dark passage. 
Yeah, not what and, most people are expecting to hear on the first Sunday of Christmas. Yeah, no, it's it's very dark and it, it's interesting. Has so many allusions to the Exodus story and, and the sort of the heart of Israel's redemptive existence and memory. And so there's all these connections. Where it's funny that Herod, who's this sort of you know king that he, he's this sort of anti-king. I mean, he's this anti-Israel king, right? It's just sort of Israel king, but looks more like a pagan. It looks more like Pharaoh than anything else. Right. Which is really yeah. Interesting. It's a recapitulation of Pharaoh. Yeah. And if you're in a tradition where you're kind of liturgically bound to read the lectionary text, then you might not have this flexibility. But if you're, for instance, a United Methodist like me, and you can read what you want, um, you may consider adding Exodus as your Old Testament reading you know, what, from the early chapters there where it talks about God's deliverance of Moses, because um, that's clearly what Matthew is alluding to here. And, and all throughout the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is, a, is, is the new and improved Moses. And so getting him to Egypt and safe out of Egypt back to uh, Israel, uh, getting him freed from the persecutor uh, uh, Herod, the, that's all key for Matthew in setting up the story and 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 presenting him as the kind of savior um, that that he's going to be. So um, I would not assume the level of biblical literacy that people would instantly think of of Moses's deliverance, and you might need to draw that line for them and maybe add it as a, as your scripture reading uh, for this Sunday. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is challenging because one of the things that I think is challenging about preaching from texts in the Christmas season is that, you know, Matthew, or the author of Matthew's gospel, he can write a sentence here, a sentence there, alluding to, you know, it's this kind of midrash tradition in in Judaism where you sort of, you you retell the story by referencing another story. And so, you know, he, but, you know, we're listening in and we often don't get the references, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's like somebody, uh, you know, you know, you maybe make a Ferris Bueller joke to like a young millennial or something, and they're like, "Well, what do you go Bueller, Bueller," and nobody gets it, right? <laughs> yeah, like yeah, you know, and that's I mean, that's the challenge, right? That it, it can be like that when you're t- preaching these texts, so you have to sort of artfully figure out how to how to bring enough into the story, yeah, to actually br- bring it alive the way Matthew is. And and this this section here that the lectionary has given us for this Sunday um, is broken up into three sections, and in, in most uh, modern Bible editions. And each of those sections ends with a quote from an Old Testament scripture. So you've got Hosea 11 in verse 15. You've got Jeremiah 31 in verse 18. And, th- and then at least an allusion to some supposed Old Testament text at the very last verse, 23. And it's a little bit debated about uh, uh, what text that's actually quoting. Some have said it might be Isaiah 11. Um, but you got you get you got three Old Testament books there in addition to the Exodus story that you can allude to, which will probably overwhelm most congregants if you try to add all that on there. But be aware that it's there. This is a text rich in uh, Old Testament allusion and and trying to bring God's people along to understanding the the, the role of the Messiah. Yeah, what's interesting too, I think, is that that you know being warned of a dream, he doesn't go. South, he goes after he leaves Egypt. Joseph, he he goes to Galilee, right, and and he makes his ta- home in Nazareth. Which you know, this whole thing can anything good come from Nazareth? Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, historically, 
you could read this as just saying, well, you know, there's a less brutal regime of Antipas, you know, up there, and maybe it's just easier to go up there. And, and, and this is just Joseph on his own ingenuity. But, you know, Matthew's saying, no, 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 this was to, you know, fulfill the prophecy. And there's no specific prophecy. It was just in the tradition of the prophets, right? The Nazarene, you think of it, you know, uh, the Nazarene vow and the prophetic vow and one dedicated to the Lord. But he's saying, look, you know, even this thing, right, this this Galilean origin, which anytime it's referenced in Jesus' public ministry is evidence of, or is sort of counter evidence to the fact that he could be the one to come, right? Mm-hmm. And Matthew's saying, no, 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 no. This Galilean origin is God's design for history. And that 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 is no disqualifier. In fact, this, no less than anything, is part of God's design for the life of Jesus, the this new Moses, the deliverer. Yeah. And, and Nazareth itself, this place that's seen as a kind of a despised place, certainly out of the way, marginal um, space, is what God uses to protect his son and, and to get him out of the limelight, to get him out of the glare of the emperor or the empire and Herod. Um, and he uses what's, what's lowly to actually be an ark of sorts to protect his son to at least get him to adulthood. Yeah, yeah. Another interesting thing, just like in conclusion, that may or may not be something homiletically people want to talk about. But I, I mean, I think it, these questions, you know, with all the deep and rich symbols, how much of this is history? How much of this is stylized symbolism? And in Pope Benedict the Sixteenth's little monograph in the inf- infancy narratives, uh, he he quotes a guy named Klaus Berger in his 2011 commentary on the whole of the New Testament, who says, even when there is only a single attestation, one must suppose until the contrary is proven that the evangelists did not intend to deceive their readers, but rather to inform them concerning historical events. To contest the historicity of this account on mere suspicion exceeds every imaginable competence of historians. And Benedict says, with this view, I can only agree. The two chapters of Matthew's gospel devoted to the infancy narratives are not a meditation presented under the guise of stories, but the converse. Matthew is recounting real history, theologically thought through and interpreted, and thus he helps us to understand the mystery of Jesus more deeply. Hmm. Now, I think that's a really interesting thing. It's not that he's sort of got all these theological ideas and dressing up as stories, but he's he's thinking of uh, things that happened and trying to tell these stories in ways that show the richness of the Redeemer, the one who is not ashamed to call his brothers and sisters and, and how you know his own suffering and story has led to our redemption. I think it's, it's a very beautiful kind of way to, and, and succinct way to deal with questions of theology and history. And if you really want to go out on a limb, say, for example, you're a guest preacher, you know, the head pastor is taking the Sunday off and you're maybe uh, a pulpit supply and, and your own livelihood or job is not at stake. Um, you could preach about Herod and um, imperfect leaders um, this is this is an age uh, where, at least in this country, our uh, top executive leaders has been impeached, and there's a debate amongst the faithful of whether he's a good leader or or not. Christianity today, making Israel great. <laughs> Christianity today, get, getting some flack for weighing in on it, and um, you know sometimes we paint Herod as just this just totally crazy, evil, off of off of his rocker kind of person, but he couldn't have stayed in power if he was just completely insane. Um, there was a cunningness to him. And, and sometimes the, the, the faithful people put their lot in with him and sometimes they didn't. Um, 
he did accomplish some things for them. Um, he did make life hard for them. Um, this is not like, um, this is not a stark, uh, black and white, uh, good guy versus bad guy kind of reality that you might have say in star Wars, um, where it's easy to know when you're seven years old, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Um, Herod's not a great guy. Not going to pretend that, but, um, he, he knew what he was doing. Um, at least in order to keep power in order to keep people happy. And so he, he killed people when he needed to, um, and he pacified people when he needed to, um, our, our modern day rulers do much the same thing. So I don't know if there's a good news in there, but it's certainly a, a tie in if you wanted to be brave, uh, in your, yeah, and I think no King or ruler, no matter how good or how, how bad it's, it's easier when they're less ambiguous, but even the best are not the King of Kings. Right. And that's right. our only King who's who thank God is also a friend to sinners and one who sympathizes. There's your place. gospel right there. That, amen. Thanks, Glenn, for doing this and blessings in your preaching, my friend. You too, Scott. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review and subscribe or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Glenn for coming on the podcast. You can find his stuff at MeaningfulWorship.Blogspot.Com. And thanks to you again for listening. Till next time, friends, fare thee well. 